Welcome, welcome, welcome to Above Replacement Radio. I am your host, Chris Gianta. You know what Christy Mathewson wasn't worried about? S-I-E-R-A. When you're thinking about Pedro Siriaco, I mean, the only one that can compete is maybe uh, Hannes Wagner's 1908 season. Over there on the other side of the screen is Daniel Kern. Like, if we just clip together every time we've talked about him on other people's profiles, we've done a Mickey Cochran episode. I can't get past Rabbit Marinville. It's it's not necessarily Hall of Fame. It's not necessarily above average, but we can guarantee you we are better than just the standard replacement level college sophomore. And welcome to Above Replacement Radio. We're talking baseball kind of whenever, a little less frequently nowadays, but kind of whenever. I'm your host, Christianta. Over there to my actual right, uh, as you cannot see on YouTube, unfortunately, is Daniel Curran. How you doing, Daniel? Chris, I'm doing very well today. We're back. It's been, uh, I think the last time we recorded was Hall the Fame. Hall of Fame, yeah. which was just about a month ago now. Yep. It was yep. it was January 25th. It was the live reaction. Um, but we got a we got a pretty exciting uh, show for you guys. Very today. exciting, for sure. We have a uh, we have another guest. We have uh, current professor of journalism at Springfield College, also a writer for Sports Illustrated, formerly at ESPN and MLB.com. We have Amy Crawford. Amy, thank you for joining us today. Oh, my pleasure. Great to be here. Um, so I guess where we'll start is uh, we're going to take it back to uh, July 29, 1989. The White Sox are coming off a walk-off loss to the California Angels. They are 43 and 60 with 20 and a half games behind, and they're 20 and a half games behind in the AL West race. But worst of all, Chicago has traded Harold Baines to the Texas Rangers. What is going through a young, a young Amy Crawford's mind? You know, it's funny. As soon as you said that date, I knew exactly what you meant <laughs> because that date is burned in my memory, in my young memory. So, um, as you both know. Uh, as you've heard from uh, both of you who have been students in my sports writing class, uh, Harold Baines is my favorite player of all time. I grew up a White Sox fan. I'm still a White Sox fan. Both of my children um, have been indoctrinated and are White Sox fans. Um, and that was, I, I, I still would actually consider it one of the worst days of my life uh, because you guys know what it's like yeah. to have a hero of yours traded um and it just i cried i really did i cried because he was you know the, he he had been with the team since i became a fan and i don't yeah. know if i've told you guys the story of how i became a white Sox fan or not um, i don't recall I, it, it was in one of it was in probably your opening pr- presentation but i think i might have given you the condensed version of yeah, but yeah, yeah. so we moved my dad got transferred to Chicago, um, and we we ended up living in Barrington, which is a northwest suburb. And this is probably hard for you guys to understand, but we didn't. There was no internet. There was no Twitter. The only way I could keep up with the White Sox was listening to AM radio. And the only radio station that we got in my bedroom in my house in Barrington, Illinois, was WMAQ which was the White Sox flagship station and a country music station. <laughs> so <laughs> um, that's what I would listen to at night. And uh, I started listening to games and became – I was already a baseball fan, but I became a White Sox fan because that was – all of my friends who had apparently lived on the other side of town and got other radio stations were Cubs fans, but I became a White Sox fan. 
um, and learned a lot about country music, which also was not totally cool uh, living in Chicago. But um, that, and Harold was my favorite player because he was like the quiet superstar. I mean, he wasn't a superstar, but he was like <laughs> quiet, super productive, not a, you know not showy, but. Um, and at that point, he wasn't yet a DH, but he right, was. Uh, right. He wasn't. You know, he actually <laughs> still uh, played. Yeah. Played right field at that point. Those those flagship stations can be funny. It can be the weirdest combination because I know uh, in Connecticut, like there's there's no like sports talk radio for Connecticut. So there's like for the Red Sox, it's News Talk 1080. It's like this. It's like a conservative talk radio, and then you have the Boston Red Sox at 7 p.m. And then for the Patriots, it's, you know, Rock 1021. So when uh, when when Baba O'Reilly is finished, you know, you get the Patriots game, you get the Patriots pregame. It's, uh, it's those flagship stations are always, uh, they always give me the giggles for sure. That's jarring. Yeah. Yes. That's interesting. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, when we, when we found out you were getting hired and you were, I looked into your Twitter when I found out you were getting hired and I saw it like, Harold Baines is my favorite player. I was like, Chris, we got to delete some footage. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll get to that. I know we've talked about this a little bit. We yes, have. the the Harold Baines Hall of Fame question. I understand, but I can give you the perspective of, uh, you know, 12 year old me, and who cried when he got traded, and then you know, a, a journalist and uh, you know a fan of advanced stats and mm-hmm. and. A, someone who cares deeply about the Hall of Fame and who belongs and who doesn't, and that side of me understands yeah. why. Yeah, I Based mean, like I can probably be like my favorite player gro- growing up was Dustin Pedroia, mm-hmm. and like, is he gonna make the Hall of Fame? Probably not. Like, I think there's a slight chance, but ultimately, I don't think it would happen. And like, I think there would be a lot of people upset if he did make it. And like, I don't know how I could completely disagree with them in that case too. Like, he was my favorite player, and I would be so happy if he got in. But, yeah. like, I see that side of it as well. One of our biggest collective sighs of relief, it was, uh, I forget what day we were in your office, but you you had the Harold Baines bobblehead, and you were like, and you were like, but I know, I know, it's not a, <laughs> and we were like, oh, man. We were like, we didn't want to be the ones to say it. <laughs> no, you would definitely not be the first people to say it. Yeah. Um, and, in fact, I was still uh, working at ESPN, obviously, when uh, when he was inducted. And I remember getting the alert, actually, it was a Sunday night, and I remember getting an alert that he had been elected, elected. Yeah. and I, I was completely surprised by it. I think every. I, I mean, yeah. I think Harold Baines himself. He was, was surprised. Yeah, there was a there was a report that came out <clears throat> that he was like stunned. I was like, me too. <laughs> Which totally checks out. That's yeah. on brand for Har- Harold Baines to like, mm-hmm. you know, not yeah. be. Well, well, then you understand the uh, appreciation for him is like the you know put his head down, you know, mm-hmm. hard work and just you know, quiet type player. But um, you do mention you were working for ESPN. It makes me curious, where were you working and, like, what was kind of your general reaction when they finally won it in 05? Because it's like you kind of had your fan hat off at that point for the most part. Well, I did, and we've talked about that, that whole idea of, you know, checking your fandom Mm -hmm. when Mm -hmm. being an objective journalist, and I think I have mentioned that in classes with both of you, and that is important. It co- I was working at Sports Illustrated at the time, and mm-hmm. I was actually focused on covering... I was not covering baseball. I was covering college basketball primarily and tennis. And so I also happened to be working with one of the most avid White Sox fans I know. There are, we're few and far between outside Chicago, but 
Art Burke, um, who is a good friend and was uh, had worked for the White Sox and at the time in 2005 we were both working at Sports Illustrated and he got to go to I think he went to maybe more than one I know he w went to one of the World Series games in Chicago with his dad who was a lifelong White Sox fan as well mm -hmm. which was a super cool moment I had tickets to game six of the 2005 World Series and I'm sure I don't have to tell you guys <laughs> yeah there was no game six because it was a sweep and they won in Houston and I remember being really conflicted I was of course thrilled that mm -hmm. my favorite team after a you know a drought that was completely overshadowed 88 years yes 88 years completely overshadowed by the Cubs drought and the Red Sox drought yeah <laughs> um we never never you their know. drought was longer than the Red Sox yeah you know, by a year exactly part of it was also that the Red Sox just got close very often <laughs> like <laughs> looking I, yeah. at the White Sox looking the, at the I'm White pretty Sox sure they had not history. like I don't think they won a playoff series between 1917 and 05 yeah. No, I mean, obviously... Which most of the time, there was just the World Series. Right. Right. In 1983, um, you know, the winning ugly team. That mm -hmm. was the first year mm -hmm. that I was really invested in the it's team. It's on uh, Baines's Hall of Fame plaque. It is. Yeah. Well, it should be. Yes. <laughs> um, the winning ugly team. Yeah. They, I, we, I remember my sister and my mom and I, because I roped my sister into rooting for the White Sox. She wasn't quite as avid a baseball fan, but I, the way I would... Um, sort of torture her as I would make her memorize like the lineup or the starting rotation or read box scores back yeah. to me um, which served her well in 2005 because she did actually have some you know nice. she, she had some you know like cultural knowledge of she still it's likes like baseball the, uh, mm -hmm. it's like the wax on wax off thing yes <laughs> exactly it all came back to her yeah um, but uh, yeah we we celebrated the day that the, the White Sox were then of course in the American League West and they clinched uh, the their playoff berth pretty early in September, and we celebrated that day. And um, you know, then obviously, the, their playoff run was short-lived. As was, and then and then in um, 1993, I was actually studying. I was a, a exchange student living in Paris, and I almost didn't go because I was so sure that the White Sox were going to win the World or at least make the playoffs at that point. That I told my parents there was you know, no streaming, yeah. no real internet. Mm -hmm. So I would go to a payphone and call home and have my mom like play the, you know, the broadcast for a while to listen. And then obviously again, a short lived run. So I didn't miss a world series championship, yeah, right. but they lost yes. a good team that year though. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. That was <laughs> that offense. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then 1994 would have been, I know that would have mm -hmm. been uh, mm -hmm. the White Sox year, but it wasn't. Expos fans beg to differ. Uh, true. <laughs> true. Yeah, true. I'm looking at it. Yeah, they were first in the AL, newly AL Central mm -hmm. at 67 and 46. But yeah, they eventually uh, get there in, in like an oddly dominant fashion, too. They went 11 and 1 in the playoffs, which is like, it's pretty crazy to do, especially with a team that wasn't exactly star studded. Like, I'm looking at the their wins above replacement leader for that year was mark burley he had 4.8 which was is like you know that's not like even probably top 10 in the league so it, it is funny how they kind of got that uh i i guess they did get it in the white Sox sort of way because they are like the the second team in the city so they kind of 
kind of go under the radar in the same way the curse went under the radar. Mm-hmm. They, have, they had a lot of under the radar players that were able to get it done. For and sure. I don't think I don't think people realize just how crazy good that team was. Like they they went wire to wire. They were in first every single day throughout the entire season. They lost one playoff game. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> and they get virtually no recognition. Nope. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Do you guys remember who the MVP of that series was? Um, of the World Series? No, it wasn't Joe Creedy. Was it? Jermaine Die. It was Jermaine Die because he had the hit in game four. It was a one nothing game. Yep. 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 Should have been a, a Jeff Blum. <laughs> <laughs> the dude got one. That, that guy got one plate appearance in the World Series. Per- it was a 14th inning home run yeah. in game three. Per plate appearance, per plate appearance, he was the best player yeah. in that. The 5,000 OPS. In that World Series. Um, so, like, uh, so you did mention that in 05 you, were, you weren't really covering baseball at that point. What points did you kind of have the fan hat on? What points did you kind of have the fan hat off? Well, I felt my, my dream, I wrote this in, like, my diary or something when I was in middle school, I think, was to grow up and become a White Sox beat reporter. That's what I mm-hmm. thought my dream job would be. And then it sort of evolved. I was both, a, I majored in both journalism and French in college, and then I, I mentioned that I was studied in France. And so then I decided maybe I would use both of my degrees. I told mine and my advisors that I would go to Montreal and cover the Expos, but then obviously that didn't, didn't work out. Work out. Yeah. Um, and th- so I, once I graduated uh, from my first job, uh, out of graduate school was working for the Sporting News, which was known throughout much of its history as the Bible of baseball. Based in St. Louis, had covered baseball, was at that point more than 100 years old. The focus by then had changed. It was no longer just covering baseball, but baseball was still very important, and everybody who worked there loved baseball, and it was such a great baseball city. Um, and, it, you know, I, I realized once I got there and I started pitching ideas and story ideas that, you know, I had to sort of check that fandom. Everybody knew I was a White Sox fan, of course, and everybody, as we've talked about in class, most of us who become sports journalists do so because we love sports and we grew up passionately rooting for teams. So, of course, that informs, you know, how you think about it and helps you understand why people care and why people want to read and listen. But I did definitely you know, consciously take a step back and I didn't just pitch White Sox story ideas, for right. example. Nobody would have, especially, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 96 or 97. That wasn't really going to fly. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I definitely, at the points where I was covering baseball, I was conscious of the fact that, you know, you can't, there's no cheering in the press box and no cheering in the, you know, in, uh, when you're pitching story ideas in the, uh, in the editor's meeting either, so... Yeah. Uh, so, and what in your time at the Sporting News, this was probably like one of the highlights of our knowledge of you, uh, is uh, you mentioned casually in the in uh, Daniel's first sport, sports writing class. Uh, the first day that I met you. Yeah, first day. Um, what we know now is you had, uh, you sat in on an interview with Stan Musial and Tony Gwynn for, for context those listening stan musial fourth on the all-time hit list 331 lifetime hitter 976 career ops uh tony gwynn uh 338 lifetime hitter also member of the 3000 hit club two of the greatest you can agree two of the greatest pure hitters ever yeah and you got to sit on an sit in on an interview 
with the both of them. I just want to I want to know everything about any, everything you remember from that interview because yeah. that is so fascinating. It yeah, I'm sorry. I know that was a bit of a flex, but uh, I mean, it was Please. and it wasn't because I, I had nothing to do with bringing them together. I was right, right, it was right. my first year working there. I was just but lucky being able enough to be in the same room. Oh yeah, is is like an honor in its own right. It was, and I think anyone, and I think a, a bunch of us all tried to, you know, uh, working with all these people who are baseball fans and fans of baseball history and understood how cool it was to have two of the greatest hitters in baseball history together um i think they sat there i think it was like two hours and they talked about you know everything bat speed um dominant hand like which you know um like reading breaking balls uh like it was just like all of this like really um nitty-gritty fascinating it's just the working you got to see like the inner workings of their brains about hitting and i it was just incredibly cool and they just you could what i thought was especially cool was seeing tony gwynn how excited he was he to was like get to that's talk just how to he his, was right he right yeah he was a student of the game yeah um and so he appreciated that he was getting it wasn't just a we were bringing them together for a story it was tony gwynn was as excited as anybody else about the opportunity to talk to one of the greatest hitters ever especially so cool that like these are two of the best hitters of all time but they also played in such different eras like, one yeah. of them, you know, like, many people might remember watching Tony Gwynn play. A, a handful of people today probably have any memories of watching Stan Musial. Right. And, like, watching, you know, seeing both of them together, like, talking about the same thing like that. That's something really special. Yeah, like, uh, I, I think Musial probably saw, pro, Musial was probably uh, in the box for Carl Hubble, and uh, Gwynn saw... Pedro. John Smoltz, yeah. Yeah, Pedro Martinez. Um, was there any, like, did you see any, like, differences in the way they kind of talked about hitting? Um, well, I remember they talked about who, like, they asked each other the toughest pitchers they ever played, you know, like, who they faced, and obviously they were from different eras. Right. Um, and uh, they they also talked about who, like, they would you know, the players they most like to watch. And I think they both named at that time Ken Griffey Jr., which right. is not like, you know, yeah, not an unpopular. I'm, I'm sure like you could have, you could survey oh, in, many people. In 1997? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I thought, and they also talked, I remember this too, about that, you know, that was a season Tony Gwynn, I think, was, um, you know, he was on a quest to hit 400. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think I remember him talking also about like you know that the pressure really weighed on him that he felt this like as I'm sure it has yeah. for any of the other players who come close. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I did I do remember that like the shared appreciation for Junior. And yeah, um, yeah, it, and it is um, it, it seems appropriate that you mentioned that Gwyn had like such an appreciation because if you look at like the. Um, if you look at the video of Ted Williams uh, being carted out at Fenway in the 1999 All-Star Game for the All-Century team, Gwyn was, like, one of the most, like, engaged people out there and, like, really just appreciating every moment. And you could you could just tell he was, like, such an uh, appreciator of, of baseball history and, mm-hmm. like, you know, everyone that came before him. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
You uh, you met when Chris had to step out for a second earlier. You mentioned another another story about meeting Stan Musial. Um, yes. Yeah, so the f- my first day, uh, I got this job after I graduated. I, I I got my master's degree and I got to start working at the Sporting News and and I was part of a group. We had been hired because the Sporting News, after being a print publication for a hundred plus years, was starting a website. So I was one of the like four editors that they brought in to help digitize you know and create this online presence and the first day I started um, my boss asked me uh, I have an extra ticket tonight is the baseball right you know the St. Louis baseball writers um, you know dinner and reception would you like to go and I was like yes of course and so that night uh, we and and, you know St. Louis baseball writers have it's a it's a very obviously based St. Louis still is and always has been a great baseball city. Yeah. So it's a pretty vibrant chapter. It's pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. And I remember we, we, we went to this reception, walked in. The first person I met was Bob Costas. And then Stan Musial was one of the other people. You know, I, I met him briefly. He was mobbed, as you can imagine, yeah, by yeah. A, a bunch of different people. But I was like, wow, like, is, this, is this what it's going to be like every day? You know, I'm just going to show up for work and then go meet Stan Musial <laughs> and Bob Costas. Um, and then... I do remember, it, you know, it was, a, it was a, they give out awards, and then Stan Musial got up on stage and started playing harmonica, which apparently is a Stan Musial, that's, he was also known for that, and he just, like, played, and then kept playing, and played for a while, you know, he's Stan Musial, You're, nobody's going to yeah. tell him it's time, you know. Stan Musial in St. Louis, like, right. that, that, I can't imagine, like, uh, I mean, that's just like, that's, that's like Tom Brady in Foxborough, right. it's, it's like, Stan Musial in, in St. Louis, like, you he could he could do literally whatever he wanted. He could, there. including play harmonica for like twenty five minutes. But it was it was thoroughly entertaining. <laughs> um, but it was funny, you know. It just I think it went on a little longer than I expected it to. But that's it, hilarious. I, yeah, who's gonna tell him no? Right. You can't. No gonna tell him no. No one's gonna no play one, him off the stage. No one wants to do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Li- yeah. I don't. Literally, I don't think. Not even like Bob Gibson or <laughs> or like Ozzy Smith. Bob Gibson probably would have. Yeah, but, if he was there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He'd be, <laughs> He'd be like, like, "All right, guy, listen." Yep. <laughs> it's like right. let's me- let's meet sixty sixty feet six inches away. <laughs> if I strike you out, you put down that harmonica. Um, so um, okay, so now we're let's go to the state of, ba- of of baseball today. First of all, what are you thinking about the the state of the White Sox? Uh, the state of the White Sox. I well, you know, I feel pretty good about nice. baseball. I. I you know, last season, I, the, the expectations were really high. Um, it was a little bit, you know, obviously disappointing um, not to see. I mean, I, I honestly thought it was a, they were a World Series caliber team. Um, I am, I guess, perplexed that it, 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 it's funny to me that the guy who was managing the team when I was a kid is now back with the team. So I, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I don't, I still don't understand the time, you know, the Tony Lewis, the, the dynamic there. And there were definitely points last season where I really thought it was all going to implode. And, you know, it's a young, exciting team with so much, yeah, you know, personality. And so, which seems to run counter to Tony Lewis and his style and his ethos. Um, but, you know, I don't, Exactly. Yeah. 
They also, like, they dealt with so many injuries, too. Right. Like, Eloy and Luis Robert both going down before the start of the season. Like, that was really tough. And Robert came back and had a, nine, had a 155 OPS plus in 68 games. Like, he played yeah. extremely well. Also right. cut down the strikeouts. Like, Grandal went down for some time. Uh, I think Tim Anderson missed some time. Like, they, had, they were throwing out some weird lineups, like, in August, and they were still winning games, too. Mm-hmm. Like, I think if that team was healthier throughout the whole season, like, we could have seen a lot more. Yeah, and, uh, and yeah, Daniel and I agreed when this hiring happened, like, the White Sox are, are in a position to succeed for, like, five-plus years, and they hired a manager where you don't know if the, he's going to be there for five years. Right. It's It was the weirdest thing, for sure. Mm-hmm. It It's funny because I, I think this is... Um, much like Harold Baines being inducted into the Hall of Fame um, through the uh, the Veterans Committee, right? Uh, yeah. The Today's Game Era. Today's Committee. Game Era, thank you. Yeah. Right, um, right, right. And the person who had the biggest role, at least from what I understand, <laughs> uh, was Jerry Reinsdorf. Yes. Um, yeah. And I feel like there was also like a former teammate, a former GM. Like there was, there was yes. a couple. Yeah, lots <laughs> of fans conflict of, of interest in there. Howard of Harold Baines in the room. Um, and so I obviously think this is another example of Jerry Reinsdorf returning to you know, yeah, someone he knows and loves from that era. Um, I I don't know. I, I know we we we've talked about this in class before, and we did watch um, last semester. We watched. Uh, one of the episodes of The Last Dance. Mm-hmm. But that it struck me when I watched that, you see Jerry Reinsdorf, obviously, in his capacity as owner of the Bulls, but he, you know, is, is a guy who is very loyal to the people he loves. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I, I, I guess that, that sort of helped me understand why he's hiring. I just, I just feel bad for Rick Hahn. Yeah. Like he spent years developing that farm system. He was praised as a GM for building the team of the future. And, like, the time finally came. And, I no, to my knowledge, nobody else in the room wanted that. Um, I, I think all the reports were like, yeah, like, the front office didn't want it. Rick Hahn didn't want it. It, it's, it was a very curious hire. Yeah. I just, like like you said, it, just, he just, it doesn't really make sense with the makeup of the team and yeah. the direction. And, like you said, Chris, like, the fact that they have this five-year window. <laughs> and mm-hmm. now you have a, not to be ageist, but a... Right. <laughs> 79 year old um so yeah, yeah. i mean I given know. given the direction of manager hirings like it was definitely outside the box right like in today's and, game yeah and i don't, actually i should say i don't think his age was the issue at all it's no simply i think it's the mindset that, like right. the mets just hired buck showalter and a lot of people were giving out the same comments and it's like buck actually like if you go behind the scenes like he's very much like he is the mind of a of like a 45 year old who's getting hired today like alex cora or like I know Rocco Baldelli, Kevin Cash. Yeah, like yeah. Like a lot of people will remind you, like, oh, five years ago we didn't put Zach Britton in the wild card game, and like, yeah, that was bad, but like that was one instance. Yeah. And reminds me of Connie Mack. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Do you at all remember watching Game Two of that uh, division series last year? Yes. Yeah. It was. It was in. It was like. It was like. Was it early afternoon? Or it like was early. Night? It was the first game of the of four game. Yeah, Friday. there might have been some classes going on during then, but the yeah. broadcast was it was so bad and so good at the same time. It was what well, it was Jim Cod, Buck Showalter, and Bob Costas. Bob Costas, <laughs> and they were name dropping. I might Connie s- Mack. I might still have the notes of the <laughs> people they listed. There was one moment where I think Yoan Moncada was up and. 
they were talking about like him being a switch hitter because like they had, the Astros had taken a righty out, put a lefty in, and you know he had switched sides of the box. And I was like, Chris, watch this. They're going to mention Mickey Mantle. And they mentioned Ted Simmons <laughs> instead, <laughs> which I was... A more niche player. <laughs> a way more niche player. Uh, recently elected into the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I still have it on my phone. Yeah. Uh, Astros White Sox broadcast. <laughs> the, the header says, Astros White Sox broadcast names mentioned. And it was uh, Brooks Robinson, Sparky Anderson, Burt Blylevin, Ted Simmons, Bob Euchre, <laughs> Connie Mack. And that was an old... That was only... Through the middle of the fifth, wow! <laughs> we switched. We switched to the uh, the Brewers, Brewers Braves, Braves game because we were like, I can't. Like the game was. So that wasn't even the Brewers game, and they're mentioning yeah Ted Simmons and Bob Co- <laughs> or Bob Uecker. Bob Uecker yeah. as yeah. a player too. As a player, yeah. Not yeah, even not, a not the broadcaster. <laughs> not the broadcaster who's still going to this day. Yeah. Wow. But, Way to uh, connect with the you know. Anytime we mention Buck Showalter, that will be that will be mentioned because it was it was too good, and I do plan because ML. On MLB.tv, you can uh, you can watch games back from last year. I do plan on eventually Fishing putting myself through the last half of the game, so I, I can I couldn't take so it. I can get some more spicy spicy name drops. Yeah. Um. All right. Anything else we want to ask before we get to the question we ask now? All of our guests. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about that question. I, um, did, I forgot about thing, that. Another thing. Another thing that you've mentioned. Uh, just like places you've been around baseball. You were at. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were at the game where Mark McGuire hit the, his 62nd home run of the 98 season? Yes. Yeah. I was. Uh, <laughs> Did you was, know this? No. Yeah. Oh, I guess I haven't uh, mentioned that. You mentioned it to me. Um, yes. So, you know, I was working at the Sporting News. It was yep. a crazy season. It, 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 it's really interesting to revisit that now, knowing what mm-hmm. we know. At the time, it was super – yeah, it was baseball was coming back from the strike this was the narrative around mark mcguire and sammy sosa on the home run chase was that they were you know saving baseball right Um, and it certainly felt like that living in st louis being part of that um one of the really wonderful perks as a fan too was we the sporting news had tickets that you know we could uh as um staff members like we could we got our turn you get a rotation so you go and then at that point uh bleacher seats at bush stadium the old bush stadium were like five dollars so i probably went to i don't know 20 25 games that summer because you know it was like affordable and i could and then every once in a while i get to go for free um and as you know as mcguire got closer it was over a weekend um and i remember i went to a couple of the games as a fan and then it worked out that we had an extra press credential for the night that he ultimate, you know, he was sitting at. I saw him hit 60 and, no, 61 on Labor Day, I think. And as a fan, I was there, like, with yeah. my mom, actually. Um, and the night of 62, I was there actually covering it as a member of the media. And my assignment was to you know try to find if he hit it to find the person who caught it because i was younger and faster and like and you guys remember you've seen the home run it's a line drive over the left field wall into the bullpen and everybody was like well how do we find the like where did it go um and then i like i was you know i remember sprinting and then somebody i don't know how we found out that it was one of the groundskeepers tim forneris who had caught it um and so that was my big like contribution to our coverage that night is I found him 
and interviewed him, and I remember him saying, oh, I'm going to give the ball back to him. And mm-hmm. I remember sort of pausing and thinking, ask him for something first. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you know, because he, w- he was like an assistant groundskeeper, so he wasn't, you know, yeah, somebody yeah. who made a ton of money, but he did work for the ball club, and I think he felt. And then they had a ceremony afterwards where he presented him with the ball, and he did end up getting, I think, something, some merchandise. I think that is a solid move to just to act like you don't want anything because you know you know you'll get a little bit of compensation. Yeah, I know, but especially you know, for that one, like that's not yeah. just like right. a guy in September coming up from the minors and hitting his first home run. That's Mark McGuire hitting the 62nd home run of the season. Well, and if yeah. you look at some of the the you know the paydays that subsequent home run, mm-hmm. you know, like milestone home run balls, yeah. drew. Oh, I yeah. mean, he did. I actually pitched a story idea because I really wanted to follow up with him on the anniversary, follow up with Tim Forneris himself, yeah. who became an assistant DA, I think. Um, but like, you know, never, I think he still actually works for the Cardinals. I was going to say, do you know where he is now? He is. He's still in St. Louis and he still works for the Cardinals. And I, I, I had pitched the story idea and for whatever reason, I think it didn't resonate with people. I, I think some of it is, you know, the people take a very, um, you know, it, we don't look at it as quite in celebra- as a celebratory mm-hmm. moment in baseball history in the way now that right. we know. Right. know everything. And so I think I had a different perspective because I was there and it was like, it felt like, you know, it so yeah. momentous. And I mean, it still was, it was still very cool. But uh, yeah, no, I couldn't really convince my, my editors, at the, my bosses at the time, hey, People will really like this story. Uh, but ESPN ended up doing a uh, documentary. Have you guys seen the... Long Gone Summer? Long Gone yeah, Summer, yeah. yeah. It was so like he's <laughs> in there a little bit. It was but. the only baseball thing to look forward to. Because it was that, at yes. June of 2020? Right. Yeah. Yes. 2020. What a, what a year. <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, do you have any other like big baseball events that you were at that you like have a memory of? Um, well, when I was working for MLB.com, I covered the 2002... All-Star Game, the infamous That was the tie. Milwaukee one? Yes, yeah. in Milwaukee when it ended in a tie, and that's why we had the, um, you know, the World Series home, uh, home, field home field advantage came out of that game, basically, because they ran out of pitchers, which was bizarre. I remember yeah. us being there um, trying to figure out what was happening um, and whether or not, like, this was – I've heard some people – theorized that it was because they were trying to they meaning i don't know if it was the players or whatever were kind of trying to stick it to bud selig in his home park i'm not sure that's (laughs) actually true i think it honestly just (laughs) it's an all-star was it was it like the first year that the world the all-star game decided home field advantage it was because of that it was because so it became a thing in 2003 right they 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 wanted something they wanted to they wanted an incentive for people an incentive right yeah for people for the game to mean something so if tory hunter didn't rob that home run that could have never been a thing. Yeah. If yeah. Torrey Hunter didn't rob a home run in 2002, the Cubs could have won Game 7 of the World Series at Wrigley. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Right. Crazy. Yeah, funny how that works out. It did feel like a bit of an overcorrection to, you yeah. know, Very I get much. it. Like, you want the game to be competitive, but um, also, I don't know. You know, I don't. That's it's weird, yeah. It was weird. It, it was, was It was weird to experience It that. is fun. Like, we're going to look it back at that. 20 years from now and think wow what a mistake yes <laughs> what a mistake. So like what were your like what were the highlights like for you from covering that game um i don't actually remember a lot from that game mm-hmm. uh part of it and I, I think i've talked to you guys about that we usually 
when I've been on, you know, I've covered a couple of World Series, and usually in a role as an editor, I was on site sort of coordinating coverage. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it was just sort of deciding, okay, you're going to go, you know, you're, um, for example, I think I have talked about um, one of the greatest series I've ever covered was the 2001 World Series. Yeah. And for so many reasons, and I lived in New York at the time, and there was just, you know, it was a, not just from a baseball perspective, but because of, you know, coming right yeah. after 9-11 and being in New York. Um, but it was really stressful because, <laughs> again, like I had, I was not there as a fan. I wasn't rooting. I was rooting for the story, as we say. Mm -hmm. And the right. story in so many of those games changed in the final at bat, which is great when you're watching as a fan, really stressful when you're, a writer who is just you know either you're writing on deadline and you've already got your story done um uh or you're an editor you know helping plan all that coverage and i remember being on uh, game seven in arizona we had a plan in place we knew who was writing the yankees win story because of course mariana rivera was coming in in the bottom of the yep. ninth inning and like well you know this game's over yeah and then luis gonzalez it's that little bloop and yep. i was actually standing outside of the Yankees clubhouse. Obviously the players weren't in there yet, but a lot of their family members were. And I remember just seeing some of the, um, you know, family members crying yeah. because it just, and I remember being like, no, 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 this isn't supposed the way it's supposed to go. It just felt weird. The Diamondbacks weren't supposed to win. The Yankees were supposed to win. Yeah. And that's the stories we had. So it was, it was actually, I remember running around and having to, you know, we had to sort of reframe the stories and decide who was writing. I mean, we had a contingency plan in place, were you but... Were you like still in the locker room when the players had to come off the field after that? No, I was not okay. because I actually ended up going, I think, back up to the press box. So I wasn't because we had okay. writers. I, I think actually maybe I didn't have my credential may not have been because I wasn't reporting on. Sure. I didn't have uh, clubhouse access for that one. Um, but every game was like that. You know, the games in Yankee Stadium, like Derek Jeter's home run. I remember coming home after that series, and um, my husband said, "Wow." That was one of the most exciting World Series ever. And I was like, it was, yeah. you know. <laughs> and now... Was it that good? I was just like, I don't know. I'm so tired. Um, but then, you know, I, I've had some time to process it and actually watch, sit back and watch the the uh, the highlights. And it's, it's fun. I still love actually reliving that series. Although seeing that hit, I think I showed you guys in class, seeing that bloop single yep. still gives me, yep. still stresses me out. Yeah, it, uh, I'm realizing now how... David versus Goliath, Goliath it was. The Yankees had won the World Series in every year of the Diamondbacks' existence prior That's to that. That's true. Yeah. I never <laughs> thought about it from that. I angle. never yeah. thought, I just realized, like, oh, yeah, the Yankees had won a lot. Oh, wait, they won every single year. Right. In their existence. All, up to all that Arizona point. baseball fans had ever known was the Yankees eventually win. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then, yeah, and then Gonzalez with the – well, there was – yeah, there was, an, there was an error. There was a Tony Womack double. Yep, there and was, there was the Tony Well, well right. Mark Mark Grace let off with a single, and there was a bunt which went into center field. Then there was another bunt that got the out of third base, and then Womack doubled. And then Craig Council, that poor guy, got hit by a pitch. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he had second and third with one out, like the greatest opportunity, and he gets hit by a pitch to load the bases. Right, and yet we still, you know, yeah, almost everybody probably watching and even in the even in the stadium there still thought well. Mm -hmm. Here comes, you know, Mariano yeah, Rivera. Exactly. It's over. Exactly. Craig um, Council just, like, has a thing for being in those games because he played for the 97 Marlins. For the Marlins, yeah. yeah. 
right, right. I don't know if you've ever seen this, but MLB Network did a documentary about the 90s Cleveland Indians, and there was footage, like unseen footage, from the locker room during the ninth inning of Game 7 when uh, Jose Mesa came in and blew the lead. And, like, I think it was, I want to say it was Bip Roberts went down to the bathroom, like, before the inning started, and, like, they already had, like, all the, like, the walls were taped up, like, they had the champagne, they had the trophy wheeled in, and they were, and, like, he had to see all of it and then go out and play the ninth inning. And then, wow. obviously, all that went the way that it did. No, I have oh. not seen yeah. that. Yeah. Oh. That is, yeah. That's brutal. It's a gun, uh, gut punch, mm-hmm. for sure. Um, all right, well... So uh, now we get into the question that we uh, that we're now asking all of our guests. Um, so I'm sure, at least from listening listening to our podcast a few times, you're familiar with Statcast. Mm-hmm. You understand, um, yeah, you understand uh, what it measures and, and things of that nature. So uh, if you were to if you were to uh, go back in time and retrieve one player's uh, complete stat, you know, ca- career stat cast stats, and kind of where they compare to the rest of the league. What player would that be? Um, well, can it be someone who didn't actually play in the major leagues? Yeah, uh, yeah, that's true. Okay, yeah, so I would say Josh Gibson. That's a great answer. Right. I don't know if anybody's ever said Josh Gibson before, he but was I'm number so eight on my list. Of he was top, of top ten. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. So obviously, I don't have to explain to you guys who Josh Gibson was, but I've just always been fascinated by you know if you know baseball history, if you watch Ken Burns' documentary, that's where I learned a lot about Josh Gibson and like the legacy mm-hmm. and the lore, like all that he was just you know shrouded in myth and. There are all these stories about him and his, you know, that he hit these, you know, home runs, these like epic home runs, and that um, so many other Hall of Famers or, you know, sort of guys like Satchel Page who did actually play with him talk about. But uh, as you know, the, the Negro League statistics are are mm-hmm. incomplete. Yeah. So there's no actual, you know, we only know a small percentage of what his actual stats were and i think his hall of fame plaque he is in the hall of fame yes um but says he hit like more than 800 home runs there there's a lot of myths out there about it which like yeah like we'll never really be able to truly know and yeah i think statcast data would definitely give us a much better idea Uh, he did i actually have a um uh pittsburgh crawford's jersey oh nice that's my uh but I, i know he was actually i think he played more of his career with uh the homestead grays but Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I just think he would be. But I also have, um, I'm also fascinated by, uh, are you guys familiar with Tony Stone or Mamie Johnson or Connie Morgan? Uh, no. Not okay. particularly. I can't believe I haven't talked to you guys about this. So there are three women who played, there are three women who actually played in the Negro Leagues. Tony Stone was the first, and she um, replaced Hank Aaron with the Indianapolis Clowns. So wow. she was an infielder. Um, Mamie Johnson, I believe, was a pitcher. And then Connie Morgan uh, played with, uh, after, I think, Tony Stone. They didn't all play together, but they played in subsequent years in the 50s, which I just think is so fascinating. And again, um, there's a really good uh, uh, woman named Martha Ackman wrote a really great biography of Tony Stone that gets into a lot of the history and talks about how you know, there's so much we don't know because it wasn't just true of it these wasn't women. really kept. Right, they just like they didn't they didn't they weren't covered like mm-hmm. um 
you know other professional teams were so we don't have all these accurate uh we don't even have game stories for a lot of it or certainly not stats but i just think i think there should be a movie by the way I think mm-hmm. there should be a movie about the three of them playing against three women, three women of color playing professional baseball in the 50s. Like, I, uh, yeah. I, want, I want that movie. There's actually a scene, you guys have seen um, A League of Their Own. Uh, I, I have not, actually. <gasps> yeah. I, I, have, I haven't watched it in a while, but yeah, I've, I've watched it. That is, yeah, you need to watch it. I, I, I for sure it have is, It is a, a baseball movie that has, that stands the test of time and, um, in so many ways, but there's actually a scene in A League of Their Own where Gina Davis's character, um, like, a, I can't remember, somebody overthrows the ball and a woman, um, a black woman, picks up the ball and Gina Davis kind of motions, like, you know, here, you can toss it to me. And she throws, like, just fires it. She's got a cannon and fires it over her head to, like, Madonna's character or something. And it's actually true, that really happened, um, that... Uh, Tony Stone went to a tryout for the All-American Girls Professional League and the league, much like, you know, Major League Baseball, did not allow black players. So she was not able to, you know, she didn't, even though she clearly was good enough to play with men of her era, you know, wasn't allowed to play because it was segregated, she couldn't play. So I've always thought that scene would be the great opening scene for the movie about Tony Stone. Yeah. So. yeah, that's absolutely. fascinating. I had no idea. I oh, yeah, God, I was not made w- made aware of that. Yeah, and I think uh, a movie would definitely shed light on it for sure. Mm-hmm. Get people uh, get people more excited about it. Well, uh, thank you very much for joining uh, joining us. Uh, it was a pleasure, pleasure to uh, get more extensive knowledge on on what you've done and uh, the experiences you've had. Um, just yeah, amazing amazing to talk to you. It was a pleasure having you on. Um, and that will do it for this installment of a ba- above of above replacement radio. It goes a month without the show, forgets its name. <laughs> yeah, it, <laughs> above replacement radio. Uh, if you're listening, or if you want to follow us on social media, follow me on Twitter at Chris underscore Gianta. Follow Daniel on both Twitter and Instagram at Daniel underscore Current, and follow the show Instagram at Above Replacement Radio for all the show needs. Um, Amy, any any uh, social media shout-outs for you? Oh, um, Amy J. Crawford. It's tw- A-I-M-E-E-J-C-R-A-W-F-O-R-D. Yeah. I'm not as exciting a follow as either of you, but, you know. Nice. I will, uh, well, you know, I think you are. I don't know I about that. I think you are. I yeah. think you are. Thank you. I enjoy it. I'm, I promise I don't just tweet about it's, the white uh, socks. <laughs> it's, quali- it's definitely quality over uh, quantity, yeah. for sure. Um All right, so that will do it for this installment of Above Replacement Radio, and we will see you at some point in the future. We don't know when. (laughs) Uh, Hopefully when this lockout is over, and hopefully that's sooner rather than later. Negotiations are going on today. Actually, to my knowledge, I haven't checked Twitter in a while, obviously, but I know the meeting started at 1. I have not seen any reports of it being over to right now. Awesome. All right. It's a break. Evan Drellick just tweeted there's a break right now. All right. Well, hour and a half in, and we're still going. All right. So maybe it'll be sooner rather than later. But anyway, (laughs) we will see you then. This conversation. This conversation is over. Is over.